tone in the movies. I'm not sure, but I know enough uh, comedy podcasts of people who work on movie sets and complain about not understanding what room tone is and how they suspect it's just a uh, gimmick for the sound guys to have their moment to lord over the entire crew. Um, that that could very well be. That's uh, why I know, do it. I just like holding control over you for a few moments. I appreciate that. You know, Nick, I think it's time to get serious. So last uh, two weeks ago, we wrapped up our our halfway of this journey. We are, uh, I think, in Lord of the Rings terms, we are, you know, um, past the outer territories of Gondor, about to enter the finally crush the threshold into Mordor itself. Uh, so it's time to get serious and stop being so fucking nerdy. Uh, let's be focused. What? Let's be professional. What? Let's make this the jumping off point for the real solid adult podcast that the two of us have in us. So, hi, uh, this is the Big Bang Theory Theory. My name is Nick. And I am Mr. Kyle. Welcome. And when you say adult, are you saying like sophisticated or horny or both? I'm saying we always get distracted on these long tangents that have nothing to do with the show. And I think it's really really time to put an end to that you know what we're going to talk about this episode today of this show the big bang theory which is of course what our viewers expect from us and we are not going to fall prey to any diversions or uh loopholes or talk about you know any other media or television that we enjoy i mean we'll do that at the end because that's important to give that to our viewers at the end but we don't need to, the fact that uh i've i've you know uh, played all of Uncharted and I'm 33% of the way through Uncharted 2 and Uncharted 2 is a demonstrably better game than mm. Uncharted on every front. We don't have to talk about that. Good. I, I won't talk about how I've restarted Elden Ring for the fifth time and this time it's going to be the time, you know? You know? Yeah, I don't want to hear about your Elden Ring bid. build. Who cares? You're probably a fucking fighter or something. No, I'm the prisoner. I, I look at all of the other classes and I'm like, come on, this one, come on. So that's the one that starts off at level one with zero buffs or skills? No, that is, that is the wretch. The, the oh, prisoner okay. has a high intelligence stat and so gets to cast pretty good uh, magic, in, not incantations, uh, sorceries. Yeah, that's a very important distinction there. But also he starts with a big metal helmet mask that covers entire his entire head and face except for his mouth and one eye and uh i love him so yeah who cares none of that matters no we're here to talk about something serious something important you know we're on the precipice of season set you know you know most shows don't get seven seasons let alone are only halfway through their runtime. Obviously, there's something historically important about the Big Bang Theory that it has so many seasons, and I really think we're doing a disservice to our listeners if we don't get to the bottom of it. Well, to start peeling back the layers of this onion for season season seven, episode one, the Hofstadter insufficiency, uh, I feel like they're trying to show as much penny chest as possible, and I feel like that has a lot to do with the show's longevity. That uh, that's there are multiple references in this episode to her. Her long, uh, she had thought, unreleased uh, long ago film where she appeared topless in um, a, a sci-fi horror film called uh, with it with a angry horny gorilla called Serial Apist, and I think it's those examinations of what a young actress has to do to willingly participate in garbage 
exploitation media if she wants to have any chance of starting her own career, no matter how she uses it in the future, uh, whether it's for her own betterment or the betterment of society, knowing that she nonetheless is uh, a direct beneficiary of the sleaze market, I think is something that is worth exploring. Kyle, how do you feel? Yeah, no, I absolutely uh, agree with all of that. I think that obviously the show has been a slow build uh, to the deep examination of uh, the sociology of the various female characters on this show. You know, it was sort of it was sort of weird that when this show started, there were no women except for one. But now the show is very female focused. You know, exploring exploring. There was also you know a whole subplot about the. Uh, the interior fantasy lives of uh, two of the peripheral characters, uh, uh, Bernadette and Amy. And so I really think that, you know, a strong uh, feminist uh, interpretation of this show that talks about this really being about their self-actualization is what we need now. Well, I think you're correct about that. And my, my favorite part about that scene is that while uh, Bernadette and Amy both initially feel some sort of obligation to maintain their their high-status, high-brow position and uh, sick to intellectual pursuits while they, they make the, the side comments uh, slandering, well, not slandering, accurately describing Penny as kind of a dummy. <laughs> like, yeah, we don't need this, this lady around. We can finally be, be big grown-ups. Uh, but that is immediately cast aside when they see cute boys. And some might look at that and say, oh, how regressive. But what, ladies can't fuck? Huh? What? Is that what's going on here? No, no, Amy and uh, Bernadette, both uh, wicked horny and wanting to milk it, uh, even uh, having the emotional infidelity uh, that, you know, they know nothing physical is going to happen. Or won't it? It's dangerous. It's, it's compelling television. I hate this bit. I'm going to keep doing it. But okay, I have to break for three seconds. Oh, taking the show seriously. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Season seven. <laughs> I knew you would crack first, you little bitch. Uh, oh, but then I hear things like that, and I remember why we do it. <laughs> I get I get, I get, get told those words, and I'm like, mm, I don't want Kyle to know how much that keeps me going. But yeah, I, don't, I guess I should actually summarize the plot, and then we can decide how much more we want to dig deep into this. But um, yeah, it's actually, uh, to go through it real quick, there's C plots. There are three plots in this thing. But in our A plot uh, is... You know, it's not good, but there is something about it I appreciate, which is they are sticking to the premise they left on season six, which is that Leonard is off on some sort of Arctic uh, or Antarctic ocean adventure for science reasons. And uh, apparently he is not just like Wallow It's in Space um, getting bullied by the other cooler, more uh, muscular scientists, uh, the astronauts, instead he is the life of the party with all of the other winter uh, soldier <laughs> engineers. And so uh, most of the A-plot, it doesn't really go anywhere except for Penny and Sheldon both commiserating about how much they miss him. Um, then they decide to call him. They call him during the middle of a party. They both get sad and jealous that he's having such a good time without them. But I don't even remember what it was exactly. But Penny turns around and is like, oh, wait, no. Oh, right. It's because uh, Sheldon reveals that before uh, Leonard left, he gave Sheldon instructions to take care of Penny. And that if he did a really good job, he'd get a sailor's cap. 
Uh, and so Penny finds that heartwarming enough that she forgives Leonard for living his best life. So A plot resolved. B plot. We already talked a good chunk about, yeah, the ladies, uh, what are they going on a conference or something? I don't know. But yeah, they, so they go out and they're going to have an adult intellectual night and then some dudes that you never see uh, buy them drinks. They think it's great. They turn into lustful, flirtatious harlots for a few moments. Nothing happens, though. They go back to their hotel rooms and then they realize that of the pair, uh, each of them were attracted to the one that more resembled the other's partner. So uh, Bernadette was like, yeah, the one I was into is a lot like Sheldon. And Amy was like, yeah, the one I was into is a lot like Wallowitz. Uh, so there, B-plot, over and done. C-plot, uh, Raj can talk now. What are you, you going to do? It's, he could just do that. It's, it's Ken. He just talks. And he goes to some sort of workplace mixer where he and Wallowitz are officially on the prowl trying to get Raj hooked up with some sort of vulnerable undergrad. Uh, and instead, Raj takes aim at the HR lady who has, like... I don't know, probably multiple substantiated complaints against him specifically. And I'm sure there's like some sort of 500 like feet minimum boundary that they're supposed to keep from each other. Uh, but they just have like a nice chat. And Raj is like, hey, I guess I'm capable of not being a bully when I'm horny now that I can talk to women. Great. And that's about everything. And then, yeah, it ends with um leonard back at the ship showing everyone the the nude scene from this mysterious old horror movie penny was in so he can prove to all of them that he does in fact have a hot girlfriend season seven we're doing it we're there we are past the halfway points glorious golden horizon is starting to shine uh i don't know this was fine do you, do you feel blown away? Do you feel like season seven has got you excited to move forward? Oh, absolutely not. That being said, um, add some, I feel like these ver- the char- versions of the characters that we have now are the exact versions of the characters that I expect we are going to have for the rest of the show. Like, I couldn't help but notice how all of them have become uh, – slightly sanded down but also just more interchangeable with each other you know like now so now that Raj can talk to women he is doing his just he is just another socially awkward nerd who is bad at talking to women Mm -hmm. and Sheldon is unlikable but his unlikableness is not all now explicitly cast as like cute and wholesome well Uh, and, and specifically to that Penny in this episode too has a weird uh, oddly sincere moment with him where she acknowledges that she dismissed something banal but nonetheless important to him and it's like oh right Sheldon does have feelings mm. so that happened yes and you know so all of that uh, and then uh, Bernadette and Amy are basically they haven't changed much, but Bernadette has become my main complaint about Bernadette. Is she doesn't talk about how much fun it is to design bioweapons anymore. And that's sort of, uh, you know, I miss that. But, uh, well, yeah, Bernadette is, she has at least as much, and we've talked about this a little bit before, at least as much like 
nerdy background as the others. And yeah, they just never use it, which is a bummer because, yeah, her weird power trips about how she's a, a, a cute, tiny little, like, blonde bunny person, but at the same time has the knowledge to destroy continents with germ warfare uh, is a fun aspect. Yeah, they don't use that nearly enough. So yeah, so I miss all of that. But then I was also, uh, and it's interesting, uh, Wallowitz is basically no longer, like, he was basically not in this episode, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, he is just kind of like a a wingman to Raj, but doesn't really do anything for him. And uh, I'm a little concerned when you talk about uh, sanding down the edges, Wallowitz's hair in this episode noticeably toned down. It's no longer... Like the big, perfectly smooth, mushroom-shaped bowl cut. It's all trimmed back a little bit where it's like, got like, you know, the essence of a bowl cut, but he's looking a little bit more just like a normal guy. And the same thing with his, his outfit too is like, you know, I, uh, I'm not, you know, it's a weird thing to complain about Wallowitz being less obnoxious, but I mean, if he's not obnoxious, there's not much left to him. <laughs> like, that's exactly right. And I feel like that's basically what I'm saying is true of all of these characters is now that we're supposed to like all of them, basically none of them are as like it doesn't matter as much. No. Uh, and like the the fact that like Although for that matter, the one oh, go ahead, finish what you're gonna say. Well, and you talk about them being interchangeable and you know, I I wouldn't say this is exactly interchangeable, but the fact that none of them have any sort of friction between them anymore and that they all get along a okay and just fine. So Sheldon can spend most of the episode with Penny and be annoying and demanding and have all these idiosyncrasies that he just uh, takes for granted to be accommodated. And Penny at this point is just like, that's our Sheldon. And yeah, there's no more struggle to understand each other that most of the series has relied on. So in that sense, the one interesting thing in this episode was the idea of Leonard becoming like a uh, a, a a party scientist, you know, a the, sea the, chad. Yeah, the well-known cliche of the. Although actually, I am saying this like uh, I found that to be one of the more. Uh, I mean, I know they'll never keep up with this transformation in his character. The second he's he's uh well i don't know prediction for the next episode or whenever he comes back off the boat because now that i think about it it is interesting that they didn't tell you when he was going to uh be off the boat but um yeah maybe this is his vacation season where he gets to take the first half off and just do these little scenes i mean that's that was true of wallowitz in space so it could very well be the case um but uh it makes me my prediction is whenever he goes back to the normal dynamic of being Sheldon's roommate, he goes back to being exactly the same insecure, annoying person he always was. But man, would it be, would it be awesome if he kept being this version of the per like, wouldn't that just be a nice, like then that would be a whole character arc for his character. Right. It's like, right, the problem well- was I just didn't spend enough time, you know, and you know, either if you want to be realistic around your peers or just, I didn't spend enough time at sea. I needed to go to sea to become well, a man. No, I, I agree. Like, I, I usually hate Leonard so much, but, like, with him having a good time and being comfortable and, like, doing his own thing in this episode, you know, it's it's a stretch, I think, to say I was happy for him, but I was like, you know, good for you, Leonard. You are actually, not only are you not annoying me, but I'm glad this is happening to your character. And, yeah, if he comes back and all of a sudden he is, yeah, an 
like a rugged Arctic seafarer, and that is the next layer of his character. Oh, I want that too. Um, I mean, then what happens if he comes back and he's so fucking salty that other babes can't stop licking his bronze, craggy flesh, and then Penny feels awkward and vulnerable? Uh, but yeah, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, that's always high hopes here, but uh, yeah, I, I would like that too. Yeah, the weird thing is, I think that often um, that often matches up with how. Uh, that's what I was going to say is, you know, scientists, nerdy STEM people, they bloom late. If they ever bloom, which they don't have to, but if they do ever become like fun people to be around, it happens late in their lives. Usually, way after they get their doctorate and they finally sort of come into themselves as adult professionals. So, I do think there would be something. Uh, I don't think it would be that crazy an arc for a person to have that he was, you know, like a loser for a long time. And then he finally went out and had some fun and just became like a regular normal person to be around. Maybe, um, you know, I don't think this happens, but just letting myself dream for a moment here. This is the first, this is the season where, where Leonard leaves because he comes back and it's like, I've transcended. I don't need this. And I don't need to, hide in this apartment with any of you I, my my adventures now they're out on the waves i i look for real treasure and i find it my boys i find it and not just the treasures of of the ether the the treasures of wisdom so ephemeral so fleeting no i mean like a fucking gold brick every now and then fellas that's that's the life for me leonard the lecherous is what they call me i don't even know why i've never kissed anyone out there but i'm gonna penny we're done by the way like, that's, uh, I want to see that happen, but no, it won't. Anything else about this one? I don't know. We're both, we're both happy about the Leonard direction, but everyone else is becoming more and more neutered. I, this Raj HR thing, I, I don't want it to happen. I hope that doesn't go anywhere, but that's probably really? the one I, thing that's going to stick. I didn't think it, it made any, I didn't think it was believable, but I did like the idea of, I mean... Uh, mostly I like that actress and I think uh, anything that she's in is better for she's definitely uh, too good to be on this show so I predict she will not be in it much longer but uh, no if it means she gets to be around more then uh, sure she can date Raj I guess well and I don't know if we ever named her before but uh, I noticed her name for the first time and yeah I should have like recognized her somehow before it is Regina King and like I do like her a lot. It's just that, like, all of her interactions with the whole crew have been negative and uh, bad for her. <laughs> and so to, like, keep bringing her back, I'm just like, leave this poor woman alone. <laughs> she's she's had enough of all of your shenanigans. Let her go. But I, I do like her, yes. So, <sighs> well, Kyle, I think this is going to be the season that really wins us over. It's It's starting out pretty mid so it only has up to go. That's certainly what must be happening. Six years of experience be damned. Um, anything else about this baby that you would like to get into? Nerd spotting. They they play 3D chess at one point. And also, oh, I'm sh- glad you brought that up. Go, go ahead. No, I was just that was it. They play 3D chess. Yeah. Well, the the reason I was glad is like, I think. That is something that, you know, obviously exists, you know, not just sci-fi version, but the op- like the, the real world uh, manifestation of the sci-fi game. But obviously it exists as a metaphor, but I remember having 
at least a few friends who never knew it as a metaphor and like would like there's just something about like oh so and so knows how to play 3d chess and be like i'm not impressed i don't think chess is a complicated game and i'd be like it's more of a concept in this case so that's what i think of whenever 3d chess comes up i know it's a very specific thing but yeah uh it is in there also you know what i thought was going to happen during that scene i thought uh penny was going to intuitively uh slam sheldon and that he would struggle to uh, understand how how could she best him with no experience again another dream of a thing that wasn't in the episode <laughs> anything else kyle no that's everything well as we always do no reason to change it now let's talk about things we actually enjoy it's our bi-weekly nerdy well that's no, twice a week isn't it or I don't know, semi-weekly would be twice a week. Yeah, I got it right. Bi-weekly nerdy thing. And uh, Kyle, I've got a very qualified recommendation, but I do have it in the chamber. Do you want to go first, or how do you feel? Uh, you can go first. Okay, so in my quest to catch up on a lot of fancier, schmancier movies that I've just never gotten around to, I'm also picking up some trash, um, specifically like older late 80s or early 90s horror movies that I was too young for or maybe uh, were just so bad that I probably legitimately wouldn't have liked them because I couldn't appreciate their nuance. And one I saw, which um, very much feels older than it actually is because I think it was actually released at the end of 96 or early 97, is uh, the, the, the film adaptation of Stephen King's Thinner. And oh my god. Yeah, have you That's seen it? Deep yes. Oh, yeah. Moons ago. Well, you know, it's one of those ones that it's always like, I should have seen this by now. With like the kinds of movies I watch, there's no way that I wouldn't have seen this by now. And yet, nope, never seen. So, I, I finally strapped in, and here are my general thoughts. One, it is a very bad movie. Two, it is a good bad movie. However, three... It is so much more racist than I expected. Like, I knew it was going to be at least kind Die of racist. Die clean, white man. Die clean. Oh, I mean, that is... For that to be, the, like, the more refreshing dialogue in the show... I mean, the movie is, says something. But anyway, I, I haven't even talked about what the premise is or, is there anything. So the way it gets so racist is a big part of the premise where our, our main character is a high-powered attorney... Uh, he represents mob bosses in criminal defense. Ah, oh, and he's got no morals. But what he does have is a voracious appetite. Man, he ate so much that the only thing he can afford to wear is a fat suit. Uh, it looks ridiculous. And it's one point, um, what a term we no longer use, in which I give some leeway for them using in this film, because it was a different time, what we now call a group of Roma come through town. And they are very much coming through like a carnival, and they set up shop in town for a little bit. And this is where what I understood about the movie before watching it, and what I now know, come into sharp conflict. Because, see, I've always known this had was a movie about a curse, and that's exactly what it is. Is He hits this old lady with his car, and the, the leader of this traveling uh, gang comes up to him on the street and rubs his face and goes, Thinner. And the whole movie 
is this guy dealing with this curse where he, no matter how much he eats, he is losing uh, pounds and pounds a day, and he just starts wasting away. And so he goes on a, a quest to uh, try to get the curse off of him, but uh, he's on a time limit because who knows how long until there's nothing left of him. And also part of the reason that uh, this, this quest is even happening is uh, in addition to hitting this one with a car, uh, while, while his wife was blowing him, by the way, uh, which also uh, they try to put a lot of blame on her for the incident. Uh, she was just doing a guy a nice favor, and she uh, gets some really undue flack in this movie, I think. But a couple other guys were involved with uh, the our main character not getting any sort of jail time or any consequences at all for this uh, accidental homicide. Uh, and so, hey, yeah, they guess what? They guess curse too. But um, like I was saying, so I, I knew it was about a curse. I knew it had to do with Romani folk. What I didn't know is that the main group of characters see uh, the traveling group come through and all of them together are like, oh no, here comes friggin' mischief and disease. We better hate crime these people out of town. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> Stephen King like has this weird obsession with the 50s and a lot of his stuff. And this is very much set in modern day. This is, well, you know, modern day at the time, you know, the late 90s. Um, it does not in any way have those throwback features of other Stephen King stuff, except for the openness and severity of the racism. It is like, it's nuts. Uh, so that is a huge red flag. Uh, and if that's a thing that bothers you, you know, now you know to watch out for it. If you, if you can get through that, it is otherwise such an over-the-top, silly, fun movie. Like, one of the curses is uh, you don't see it happen. You hear about it after the fact, where the old man at some point had to go up to a guy, <laughs> rub his face, and say the word, LEZARD. <laughs> that's, not, that's good to know that happened. And there's another guy who, I feel like his condition is more ambiguous, according to the the Wikipedia entry referencing the novel, he was afflicted with uh, severe acne. <laughs> he was going to get acneed to death. So, yeah. Uh, and it's... It is really, really trashy. It's one of those things that, like, you know, gets into theaters, but you kind of wonder who gave the okay to make it, like, a big feature release. <laughs> so, uh, but it is a lot of fun. So that's why I recommend it. In spite of all of its its ugly warts, uh, yeah, thinner is a good time. Kyle, There's no Silver Bullet though. Have you ever seen Silver Bullet? I've seen it once, and I just remember. Uh, my, I mean, the most I remember is Gary Busey getting drunk and ranting a lot. Uh, but that's that could be any Gary Busey. any Gary Busey appearance. Yeah. Okay, I was going to. Uh, so my recommendation, which is, it's a little bit. Uh, presumptuous because i haven't actually finished the game yet because i've been very busy lately but i did start it and i'm like ah hell this thing's pretty good uh something to talk about is um it's like a dragon uh oh ishin Ishin. yes Uh, so Uh, i haven't played this i just it's one of those things that i'm kind of thirsting for and i'm gonna try to avoid buying but please do uh, tell that i am so sorry so like a dragon ishin is actually Two things about so it is a 
it is actually part of what in the West has traditionally been called the Yakuza series, although apparently that was always a mis- like just not the correct translation. The games have always been called Like a Dragon in the Japanese, and, but they're about, you know, Japanese mobsters traditionally, so they decide when they ported them over here that, the, that they would call them Yakuza games. And they've made, uh, I mean, they've made like seven of them or eight of them, but for a, a long time, yeah, for a long time, they, you know, they weren't coming over here because uh, translation is expensive. Uh, and so one of the interesting things in the last few years has been like Japanese developers being like, oh, hey, Americans don't actually mind reading subtitles. At least the ones who would play our games anyway don't seem to mind. So we don't have to spend a billion dollars getting all of the dialogue read recorded we can just translate it and put it at the bottom of the screen and so this has allowed a lot more of their games to come over here and grow in popularity and they've also remastered or remade several of them you know with slightly updated engines or graphics or whatever um and this is the i think in that so this is in both categories it was originally not released over here and now it's being released up updated and upgraded for the you know ps4 ps5 generation uh and what's interesting about it is it, it is a, uh, instead of uh, following the main character and his adventures as a Japanese gangster, follows the main characters and his adventures in the late 1800s as a Japanese samurai. And part of the joke is that this is a, um, so this is actually what I wanted to talk about, which this is very much a samurai game. I mean, it could not be more of a, of a game where you are like, a, you know, a dude bound to a social case that involves wearing kimonos and swinging a sword around. Um but it's sort of interesting the way that the Japanese treat, or at least this particular game treats this as opposed to most games that I've played with samurai in it. It's instantly better. And the reason it is better is because this is not about samurai as some sort of like, uh, re- as some sort of like imagination, like filtered through like cinema and Western fantasies of what samurai mean and all of that bullshit. As much as that stuff can be fun, it usually ends up with then what you get is basically just like, uh, you know, a cool Kung Fu ninja with a samurai sword who's sort of interchangeable from 10,000 other generic action protagonists. Whereas this game is about an actual, the actual historical samurai during a particular historical period, which is, was sort of like the twilight of their influence. Um, And because of that, it is a very, like detailed nuanced and down to earth look with the caveat that this is a like a dragon slash yakuza game so so much of the dialogue and characterization and like actual action beats is ridiculously over the top so that's sort of an interesting juxtaposition so the game oh and the other thing i should say is part of the joke of the game is that it is um, the characters from it, the, all of the other Yakuza games have had the same main character and the, and a large portion of the same supporting cast. And so rather than um, make a completely different game with a completely different protagonist, the main character and side characters of this game are all very clearly the same characters. I mean, I guess it's basically, I guess it's a Blackadder situation. So it is very clearly like all of the same characters from all the other games just if they had lived in the 1800s, this is who they would have been. And in fact, one of them plays a real historical personage. Um, the main character, uh, I have no idea, you know, I'm not an expert in this particular Japanese time period. I know that the character he's playing 
is uh, a real historical person who has appeared in many um, historical like novels and films and anime and things. Uh, I don't know if this particular portrayal of him is particularly well researched because, yeah, it's the story of a guy. He's a, he's he's a you know he was basically orphaned and raised to be a samurai, and of course his. Uh, and this is during a time period when the samurai class is basically the ruling class of Japan, but they're also very, uh, you know, sort of corrupt and lazy. And so the people who want reforms, you know, are, are searching for pressure points. And that includes the, the basically the surrogate father of the main character. And that guy gets murdered, which leads your character to go on a quest and adopt a new identity. And it's the new identity that is the historical personage, which is why I'm not sure if that part's actually true or not. So he's basically undercover as uh, this whole other person for the entire story. Um, and that person is uh, a member of the Shinsengumi, which, uh, Nick, do you know anything about the Shinsengumi? I don't think I've ever heard that word before. Well, you have to, there's ramen shops called Shinsengumi. Have you never eaten, have you never seen one of those? I got, maybe not, I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> That's okay. I don't think the ramen shops have anything to do with the other. In fact, maybe I'm the one misremembering the name of the ramen shops. But in Japan, so in Japan in the late 1900s, while Japan was still basically a pre-industrial feudal society, albeit an incredibly bureaucratically and culturally advanced one, you know, civil wars finally broke out after the Americans showed up and kind of fucked everything up. And showed that, like, you know, Japan was centuries behind technologically a lot of other countries. Uh, it, it kicked off the civil war between various factions who wanted, like I said, either different reforms or overthrows of the traditional samurai power structure or whatever. And some of those people, in broad strokes, supported the emperor and some of them supported, like, the, the, the samurai clan in charge of the status quo, uh, the shogunate. And the people... And so... What was interesting is after like 300 years in which there had basically been no heavy open warfare or samurai fighting, all of a sudden dudes were like mixing it up in the streets of like the capital. So it was basically like, you know, in any other period of civil unrest, it was not, I mean, it's not that dissimilar to sort of what we have now in our current uh, moments of racial and political unrest. You would have people you know, showing up and because they were samurai, they just happened to have their swords with them. And all of a sudden you have, uh, you have sword fights breaking out in the middle of the streets where there hadn't been fucking like open sword fights for literally centuries. And so as a response to that, one side formed a faction of, depending on who you ask, they were either peacekeepers or they were like, you know, basically like an, uh, a, a murder, an execution squad, um, but they were called the Shinsengumi, and they, they you know, patrolled around looking for people who expressed disloyalty to the regime, and they got into sword fights with them and murdered the shit out of them. And so because of that, because of their uh, reputation as being these badass sword fighters who were who nevertheless were on the doomed side of the whole conflict in history, um, they've become sort of romantic figures who who feature as either heroes and villains in a lot of stories. Sort of like they're very similar, I guess, in that respect to sort of like the musketeers in like except maybe portrayed not always as romantically. Um, but anyway, so your main character becomes a high ranking member of the Shinsengumi and it is just about the wild ass, um, you know, shit he gets up to the samurai fights and everything like that. 
Um, so it's great. I mean, the combat the combat isn't like perfect, but it's fun. And like I said, uh, the the texture of the city. So all of these, all every single one of these, like a gra- dragon games, is basically it's like second, it's an action game, but first and above all else, it is a Japanese walking simulator, uh, mm. like a a Japanese tourism simulator. So in this one, you basically get to walk around like uh, you know Kyoto hundred a couple hundred years in the past and you know figure out what it would be like to frequent the shops and drink with the and make buddies with the vendors and do karaoke and gambling and shit like that and that is awesome being a itinerant samurai badass in the 19th or in the late 1800s you know four out of four highly recommend all right yeah that uh you know i need to Finish the games I've got before I move on to even more new games. But that's one that's been standing out. And it's one of those things where like that and Yakuza Like a Dragon, in spite of the weird naming conventions that you just talked about at the beginning of your description, um, that being the first one around these parts to be the RPG version, I was like, oh, wait a second. I can play these Yakuza games with turn-based combat? Now I'm very interested. Yeah, uh, and you know, when that first came out, I didn't get that, like, how on earth they settled on that transition. But actually, if you play the others, what's funny about them is they are all, like, weirdly kind of turn-based combat games. Because unlike other games where you walk around and you get into uh, into fights in, like, the middle of the normal com- course of combat, in these games, like you're walking around and you'll encounter a rival gang and the fight will start. But when the fight starts, like everybody else clears out. So it's literally just like you fighting in the street with a bunch of random hooligans. You beat the shit out of them. You gain experience at the end of the fight. And then you use that experience to level up your fighting moves. So in a weird way, they've always been turn-based RPGs. It's just that they had a, a much more serious action component. So they're more honest about it now. Well, maybe that'll be my next little thing after I finish Elden Ring, which I'm gonna finish this time. Oh yeah, you're totally gonna beat Elden Ring. Since since starting Elden Ring, I've beat Bloodborne, I think, for the first time, and maybe about four times since then. I've beat Xenoblade Chronicles 2, I've beat many other games, but this time it's gonna be Elden Ring. <sighs> I totally agree with you. The constant, endless pursuit of something better is what the show is all about, however futile it may be. <laughs> Season 7, everybody. 